Chapter Twenty Two of A Son of the Middle Border by Hamlin Garland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. We discover New England. Edwin Booth's performance of Hamlet had another effect. It brought to my mind the many stories of Boston which my father had so often related to his children. I recalled his enthusiastic accounts of the elder Booth and Edwin Forrest, and especially his descriptions of the wonderful scenic effects in Old Put and the Gold Seekers, wherein actors rode down mimic stone steps or debarked from theatrical ships which sailed into pictured wharves. And one day in the midst of my lathing and sawing, I evolved a daring plan. I decided to visit Boston and explore New England. With all his feeling for the East, my father never revisited it. This was a matter of pride with him. I never take the back trail, he said, and yet at times, as he dwelt on the old home in the state of Maine, a wistful note had crept into his voice. And so now in writing to him, I told him that I intended to seek out his boyhood haunts, in order that I might tell him all about the friends and relations who still lived there without in any formal way intending it. The old borderman had endowed both his sons with a large sense of the power and historic significance of Massachusetts. He had contrived to make us feel some part of his idolatry of Wendell Phillips, for his memory of the great days of the Liberator were keen and worshipful. From him I derived a belief that there were giants in those days, and the thought of walking the streets where Garrison was mobbed and standing in the hall which Webster had hallowed with his voice, gave me a profound anticipatory stir of delight. As first assistant to a quaint and dirty old carpenter, I was now earning two dollars per day and saving it. There was no occasion in those days for anyone to give me instructions concerning the care of money. I knew how every dollar came, and I was equally careful to know where every nickel went. Travel cost three cents per mile, and the number of cities to be visited depended upon the number of dimes I should save. With my plan of campaign mapped out to include a stop at Niagara Falls and Fourth of July on Boston Common, I wrote to my brother at Valparaiso, Indiana, inviting him to join me on my adventure. If we run out of money, and of course we shall, for I have only about thirty dollars, we'll flee to the country. One of my friends here says we can easily find work in the meadows near Concord. The audacity of my design appealed to my brother's imagination. I'm your huckleberry, he replied. School ends the last week in June. I'll meet you at the Atlantic House in Chicago on the first. Have about twenty dollars myself. At last the day came for my start. With all my pay in my pocket and my trunk checked, I took the train for Chicago. I shall never forget the feeling of dismay with which, an hour later, I perceived from the car window a huge smoke cloud which embraced the whole eastern horizon, for this, I was told, was the soaring banner of the great and gloomy inland metropolis, whose dens of vice and houses of greed had been so often reported to me by wandering hired men. It was, in truth, only a huge flimsy country town in those days, but to me it was august as well as terrible. Up to this moment, Rockford was the largest town I had ever seen, 
and the mere thought of a million people stunned my imagination. How can so many people find a living in one place? Naturally, I believed most of them to be robbers. If the city is miles across, how am I to get from the railway station to my hotel without being assaulted? Had it not been for the fear of ridicule, I think I should have turned back at the next stop. The shining lands beyond seemed hardly worth a struggle against a dragon's brood with which the dreadful city was a swarm. Nevertheless, I kept my seat and was carried swiftly on. Soon the straggling farmhouses thickened into groups, the villages merged into suburban towns, and the train began to clatter through the sooty freight yards filled with boxcars and switching engines. After crawling through tangled, thickening webs of steel, it plunged into a huge, dark, noisy shed and came to a halt, and a few moments later I faced the hackman of Chicago, as verdant a youth as these experienced pirates had ever made common cause against. I knew of them by report, and was prepared for trouble, but their clanging cries, their cynical eyes, their clutching insolent hands were more terrifying than anything I had imagined. Their faces expressed something remorseless, inhuman and mocking. Their grins were like those of wolves. In my hand I carried an imitation leather valise, and as I passed each of the drivers made a snatch at it, almost tearing it from my hands. But being strong as well as desperate, I cleared myself of them, and so, following the crowd, not daring to look to right or left, reached the street and crossed the bridge with a sigh of relief. So much was accomplished. Without knowing where I should go, I wandered on, shifting my bag from hand to hand, till my mind recovered its balance. My bewilderment, my depth of distrust, was augmented by the roar and tumult of the crowd. I was like some wild animal with exceedingly sensitive ears. The waves of sound smothered me. At last, timidly approaching a policeman, I asked the way to the Atlantic Hotel. Keep straight down the street five blocks and turn to the left, he said, and his kind voice filled me with a glow of gratitude. With ears benumbed and brain distraught, I threaded the rush, the clamor of Clark Street, and entered the door of the hotel with such relief as a sailor must feel upon suddenly reaching safe harbor after having been buffeted on a wild and gloomy sea by a heavy northeast gale. It was an inconspicuous hotel of the farmer's home type, but I approached the desk with meek reluctance and explained, I am expecting to meet my brother here. I'd like permission to set my bag down and wait. With bland impersonal courtesy, the clerk replied, Make yourself at home, gratefully sinking into a chair by the window. I fell into study of the people streaming by, and a chilling sense of helplessness fell upon me. I realized my ignorance, my feebleness. As a minute bubble in this torrent of human life, with no friend in whom I could put trust, and with only a handful of silver between myself and the gray wolf, I lost confidence. The Boston trip seemed a foolish tempting of providence, and yet, scared as I was, I had no real intention of giving it up. My brother's first words, as he entered the door, were gaily derisive. 
"'Oh, see the whiskers!' he cried, and his calm acceptance of my plan restored my own courage. Together we planned our itinerary. We were to see Niagara Falls, of course, but to spend the Fourth of July on Boston Common was our true objective. "'When our money is used up,' I said, "'we'll strike out into the country.' To all this my brother agreed. Neither of us had the slightest fear of hunger in the country. It was the city that gave us pause. All the afternoon and evening we wandered about the streets, being very careful not to go too far from our hotel, counting the stories of the tall buildings and absorbing the drama of the pavement. Returning now and again to our sanctuary in the hotel lobby, we ruminated and rested our weary feet. Everything interested us. The business section, so sordid to others, was grandly terrifying to us. The self-absorption of the men, the calm glances of the women, humbled our simple souls. Nothing was commonplace, nothing was ugly to us. We slept that night in a room at the extreme top of the hotel. It couldn't have been a first-class accommodation, for the frame of the bed fell in the moment we got into it, but we made no complaint. We would not have had the clerk know of our mishap for twice our bill. We merely spread the mattress on the floor and slept till morning. Having secured our transportation, we were eager to be off. But as our tickets were second class, and good only on certain trains, we waited. We did not even think of a sleeping car. We had never known anyone rich enough to occupy one. Grant and Edwin Booth probably did, and senators were ceremoniously obliged to do so. But ordinary folks never looked forward to such luxury. Neither of us would have known what to do with a berth if it had been presented to us, and the thought of spending two dollars for a night's sleep made the cold chills run over us. We knew of no easier way to earn two dollars than to save them. Therefore we rode in the smoker. Late that night, as we were sitting stoically in our places, a brakeman came along, and having sized us up for the innocents we were, good-naturedly said, "'Boys, if you'll get up, I'll fix your seat so's you can lie down and catch a little sleep.' Silently, gratefully, we watched him while he turned up the cushions and turned them lengthwise, thus making a couch. To be sure, it was a very short and very hard bed, but with the health and strength of nineteen and twenty-two, we curled up and slept the remainder of the night like soldiers resting on their guns. Pain, we understood, was an unavoidable accompaniment of travel. When morning dawned, the train was running through Canada, and excitedly calling upon Franklin to rouse. I peered from the window, expecting to see a land entirely different from Wisconsin and Illinois. We were both somewhat disappointed to find nothing distinctive in either the land or its inhabitants. However, it was a foreign soil, and we had seen it. So much of our exploration was accomplished. It was three o'clock in the afternoon when we came in sight of the suspension bridge at Niagara Falls. I suppose it would be impossible for anyone now to feel the same profound interest in any natural phenomenon whatsoever we believed that we were approaching the most stupendous natural wonder in all the world, and we could scarcely credit the marvel of our good fortune. 
All our lives we had heard of this colossal cataract. Our school readers contained stately poems and philosophical dissertations concerning it. Gough, the great orator, had pointed out the likeness of its resistless torrent to the habit of using spiritous liquors. The newspapers still printed descriptions of its splendor, and no foreigner, so we understood, ever came close to these shores without visiting and bowing humbly before the voice of its waters. And to think that we, poor prairie boys, were soon to stand upon the illustrious brink of that dread chasm and listen to its mighty song was wonderful, incredible, benumbing. Alighting in the squalid little station on the American side, we went to the cheapest hotel our keen eyes could discover, and leaving our valises, we struck out immediately toward the towering white column of mist, which could be seen rising like a ghostly banner behind the trees. We were like those who first discover a continent. As we crept nearer, the shuddering roar deepened, and our awe, our admiration, our patriotism deepened with it, and when at last we leaned against the rail and looked across the tossing spread of river swiftly sweeping to its fall, we held our breaths in wonder. It met our expectations. Of course we went below and spent two of our hard-earned dollars in order to be taken behind the falls. We were smothered with spray and forced to cling frenziedly to the hands of our guide but it was a part of our duty, and we did it. No one could rob us of the glory of having adventured so far. That night we resumed our seats in the smoking car, and pushed on toward Boston, impatiently endured discomfort. Early the following morning we crossed the Hudson, and as the Berkshire Hills began to loom against the dawn, I asked the brakeman, with much emotion, "'Have we reached the Massachusetts line?' We have, he said, and by pressing my nose against the glass and shading my face with my hands, I was able to note the passing landscape. Little could be seen other than a tumbled stormy sky, with wooded heights dimly outlined against it. But I had all the emotions of a pilgrim, entering upon some storied oriental vale. Massachusetts to me meant Whittier and Hawthorne and Wendell Phillips and Daniel Webster. It was the cradle of our liberty, the home of our literature, the province of art, and it contained Boston. As the sun rose, both of us sat with eyes fixed upon the scenery, observant of every feature. It was all so strange, yet familiar. Barns with long, sloping roofs stood with their backs against the hillsides precisely as in the illustrations to Hawthorne's stories and Whittier's poems. The farmhouses, old and weather-beaten, and guarded by giant elms, looked as if they might have sheltered Emerson and Lowell. The little villages with narrow streets, lined with queer brick-walled houses, their sides to the gutter, reminded us of the pictures in Ben Franklin's autobiography. Everything was old, delightfully old nothing was new. Most of the people we saw were old. The men working in the fields were bent and gray. Scarcely a child appeared, though elderly women abounded. This was thirty-five years ago, before the Canadians and Italians had begun to swarm. 
everywhere we detected signs of the historical, the traditional, the Yankee. The names of the stations rang in our ears like bells, Lexington, Concord, Cambridge, Charleston, and at last, Boston. What a strange new world this ancient city was to us, as we issued from the old Hoosick Tunnel station. The intersection of every street was a bit of history, the houses standing sidewise to the gutter, the narrow ledge-like pavements, the awkward two-wheeled drays and carts, the men selling lobsters on the corner, the newsboys with their papas, the faces of the women so thin and pale, the men neat, dapper, small, many of them walking with finicky precision as though treading on eggs. Everything had a Yankee tang, a special quality. And then the noise. We had thought Chicago noisy, and so it was. But here the clamor was high-keyed, deafening for the reason that the rain-washed streets were paved with cobblestones, over which enormous carts bumped and clattered with resounding riot. Bewildered, with eyes and ears alert, we toiled up Haymarket Square, shoulder to shoulder, seeking the common. Of course we carried our handbags. The railway had no parcel rooms in those days, or if it had, we didn't know it, clinging to them like ants to their eggs, and so slowly explored Tremont Street. Cornhill entranced us with its amazing curve. We passed the granary burying ground and King's Chapel with awe, and so came to rest at last on the upper end of the common. We had reached the goal of our long pilgrimage. To tell the truth, we were a little disappointed in our first view of it. It was much smaller than we had imagined it to be, and the pond was only a pond. But the trees were all that Father had declared them to be. We had known broad prairies and splendid primitive woodlands, but these elms dated back to the days of Washington, and were to be reverenced along with the State House and Bunker Hill. We spent considerable time there on that friendly bench, resting in the shadows of the elms, and while sitting there we ate our lunch and watched the traffic of Tremont Street, in perfect content till I remembered that the night was coming on, and that we had no place to sleep. Approaching a policeman, I inquired the way to a boarding-house. The officer, who chanced to be a good-natured Irishman, with a courtesy almost oppressive, minutely pointed the way to a house on Essex Street. Think of it, Essex Street. It sounded like Shakespeare and Merry England. Following his direction, we found ourselves in the door of a small house on a narrow alley at the left of the common. The landlady, a kindly soul, took our measure at once and gave us a room just off her little parlor, and as we had not slept normally for three nights, we decided to go at once to bed. It was about five o'clock, one of the noisiest hours on a noisy street, but we fell almost instantly into the kind of slumber in which time and tumult do not count. When I awoke, startled and bewildered, the sounds of screaming children, roaring, jarring drays, and the clatter of falling iron filled the room. At first I imagined this to be the business of the morning, but as I looked out of the window I perceived that it was sunset. Wake up! I called to Franklin. It's the next day! 
We've slept twenty-four hours. What will the landlady think of us? Frank did not reply. He was still very sleepy. But he dressed, and with Felice in hand, dazedly followed me into the sitting-room. The woman of the house was serving supper to her little family. To her I said, You've been very kind to let us sleep all this time. We were very tired. All this time? she exclaimed. Isn't it the next day? I asked. Then she laughed, and her husband laughed, doubling himself into a knot of merriment. Oh, but that's rich, said he. You've been asleep exactly an hour and a quarter, he added. How long did you think you'd slept? Two days? Sheepishly confessing that I thought we had, I turned back to bed, and claimed ten hours more of delicious rest. All the next day we spent in seeing Bunker Hill, Faneuil Hall, and the Old North Church. King's Chapel, Longfellow's Home, the Washington Elm, and the Navy Yard. It was all glorious, but a panic seized us, as we found our money slipping away from us. And late in the afternoon we purchased tickets for Concord, and fled the roaring and turbulent capital. We had seen the best of it anyway. We had tasted the ocean and found it really salt, and listened to the sailors with bearded lips on the wharves where the ships rocked idly on the tide. The tide! Yes, that most inexplicable wonder of all we had proved. We had watched it come in at the Charles River Bridge, mysterious as the winds. We knew it was so. Why Concord, do you ask? Well, because Hawthorne had lived there, and because the region was redolent of Emerson and Thoreau, and I am glad to record that upon reaching it of a perfect summer evening, we found the lovely old village all that it had been pictured by the poets. The wide and beautiful meadows, the stone walls, the slow stream, the bridge and the statue of the Minuteman guarding the famous battlefield, the gray old manse where Hawthorne lived, the cemetery of Sleepy Hollow, the grave of Emerson. All these historic and charming places enriched and inspired us. This land, so mellowed, so harmonious, so significant, seemed hardly real. It was a vision. We rounded out our day by getting lodgings in the quaint old Wright's Tavern, which stood, and still stands, at the forks of the road, a building whose date painted on its chimney showed that it was nearly two hundred years old. I have since walked Carnarvon's famous walls, and sat in the circus at Nîmes, but I have never had a deeper thrill of historic emotion than when I studied the beamed ceiling of that little dining-room. Our pure joy in its age amused our landlord greatly. Being down to our last dollar, we struck out into the country next morning, for the purpose of finding work upon a farm, but met with very little encouragement. Most of the fields were harvested, and those that were not were well supplied with hands. Once we entered a beautiful country place, where the proprietor himself, a man of leisure, a type we had never before seen, interrogated us with quizzical humor and at last sent us to his foreman with honest desire to make use of us. But the foreman had nothing to give, and so we went on. All day we loitered along beautiful wood roads, passing wonderful old homesteads, gray and mossy, 
sheltered by trees that were almost human, in the clasp of their protecting arms. We paused beside bright streams and drank at mossy wells operated by rude and ancient sweeps, contrivances which we had seen only in pictures. It was all beautiful, but we got no work. The next day, having spent our last cent in railway tickets, we rode to Ayer Junction, where we left our trunks in care of the baggage man and resumed our tramping. End of chapter 22